What is the relationship of one human being to the rest of life? No species is an island. Hey, humans! Welcome to this week's Demystifying Science. We just got off the bib phone with Mary Ellen Hannibal, a writer, artist, and citizen ecologist. She wrote the book on citizen science. And called it Citizen Science, Searching for Heroes and Hope in the Age of Extinction. Well, what is citizen science? Many practitioners refer to it as community science and it's a manner of gaining perspective on natural phenomena. Community members work to understand nature not as professionals, but as amateurs driven by love and curiosity for the world around them. Citizen science is all about data collection and collaboration. Often, participants translate their findings into literature and artwork, while professional scientists chip away at the scientific manuscripts and theory. Ms. Hannibal is a treasure trove of information about citizen science, and she has dedicated many years of her life to stemming the rivalry between humans and nature. She's written three books about it, Citizen Science, The Spine of the Continent, and Evidence of Evolution, and The Botanical Guide, Leaves and Pods. In her other time, she's a professor at the California College of the Arts, and she's a frequent collaborator in the production of wildly beautiful visualizations that blend science, design, and her writing. Her passion for citizen science has led her to work with such places as the San Francisco Botanical Garden, Smith College, Stanford University, the American Geophysical Union, and the Rewilding Leadership Council. Her writing has won many awards and fellowships, and her fiery passion for the work is clear in every word. Right now, she is reconstructing an accurate history of land use changes in the United States and how those changes have affected wildlife and humans alike. Keep an eye out for that. During our wide-ranging discussion, we covered many topics. At first, we talked about how to get involved with citizen science, but then also we talked about the relationship of humans to nature, birth and death, and the role of theory in science, just to name a few of the topics. So, if you like the conversation, check out our books. They're captivating, full of human stories in addition to the science, and just great reads. To know more about Mary Ellen and her work, follow her on Twitter at mehannibal, on Instagram at speakbutterfly, or at her website, maryellenhannibal.com. We'll link those in the description. As always, if you like what you hear, like, subscribe, and hit the bell to be notified when the next episode is out. It costs you nothing, but it helps us a ton. A ton. See you next week. Enjoy the conversation. Bye. How are you doing? Good morning. Uh Hi, guys. I'm very well. You wrote a book called Citizen Science. What is a citizen scientist? Well, I like to say a citizen scientist is anybody. Uh, it is a regular person uh, without a scientific credential. So we think of scientists as having PhDs, but you don't need one to be a citizen scientist. And it's a person who makes observations about the natural world 
And I like a bigger a definition of citizen science. So people that are out um, restoring ecosystems, like pulling invasive plants and planting native plants, I consider them citizen scientists because they're helping to uh, restore something that we know from science, which is how nature best functions and how to support it. And I should say, since you guys are in space, that really the original um, uh, web-based and computer-driven citizen science is Zooniverse. And Zooniverse, you can participate in now. Anybody can do it from their computer. And the very first uh, projects on Zooniverse had to do with the stars. And there still are. So the human eye can detect galaxies better than computers can. And so the people that want galaxies identified in these incredible photographs that satellites take ask people to look at the photographs and identify the galaxies. So those are regular people that are actually making scientific discoveries right from their desktop. That's very but, um, interesting. We were just speaking with a space miner. Ooh. Yeah, he was building technology for a moon base and he was involved in transforming one of the NASA satellites for citizen science for citizen Yay, science really yeah so he found this satellite that was about to head away from the earth it was on a trajectory to go into the outer solar system and NASA asked him and his friend to save it, basically. And after they saved it, put it back into a stable orbit, now it's publicly accessible. So you can get the data. It's called I IC3. I-C-E-E. -E I-S-E-E-3. -E we don't remember things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fascinating. So I wonder if the Zooniverse people are using any data from that. Well, I, I don't know. So this, the, uh, those projects tend to be, you know, uh, astronomers using, you know, the incredible telescopes. And I don't know what, to what degree they're using uh, satellite data versus telescopes. But in the kind of citizen science that I focus on, which is really about the Earth and the biology of the Earth, citizen science has a really old and ancient history, which is indigenous cultures and indigenous people who for their whole histories have always had direct knowledge and direct inquiry into what's going on with the other species that they live with. And there's a lot that we, you know, that's a whole area of, a beautiful area of citizen science to get back to being an indigenous earthling as, um, as we might call it. And then on the other end of things, some of the citizen science platforms like eBird or iNaturalist or Nature's Notebook actually use satellite data as well. There are satellites that go around the Earth. Landsat is, is the main one that has been going around the Earth 40 years, taking pictures of the land cover and the oceans. And those um, imagery, that imagery is in use by citizen scientists and PhD scientists. And since the government funds that, it's you could call that Landsat citizen science because we, of course, fund the government individuals, fund that, fund that research. What happens to all this data? 
Oh, data is such a big bear. I've actually been grappling with it myself in a project that I'm working on to try to actually see land cover change um, in the U.S. in the last century. The data is out there, but it's everywhere, and it's in these different pockets. Um, a few years ago, I attended a conference in Washington, D.C. that was about this whole problem of there's all these different databases that... Um, have collected different kinds of information and they don't necessarily have speak the same language and they, they aren't necessarily integrated with each other. There's huge projects going on to try to rectify that. So there's something called data one that's trying to do that. And, um, but when I'm looking for land cover change, I'm looking into the U S geological survey, department of agriculture, NASA, uh, Google, there, I should mention something called SkyTruth, which is a nonprofit. And what they do is they take these images that these satellites provide that are free. Anybody can go and consult that data through your own desktop. That data is accessible and free to you. Cool. However, it is somewhat incomprehensible because of the way the pictures are taken by the satellite. Hmm. So SkyTruth is actually a nonprofit that cleans up the imagery to make it more usable by people like you and me. Are the academics interpreting the data? You know, I, um, I believe that what they do is basically kind of take cloud cover out. Um, they, they might compress some time t periods where there might be like an hour of the same, um, something and you want to get to the next thing that happens but i do not know do not take my word for that because i'm working on my memory of of knowing about this organization and and that's not up to date i guess what i'm thinking is you talk about one of the original citizen scientists at least from europe being darwin and darwin collected data but he also came up with a theory do citizen scientists on Earth theorize also? Well, you know, that's a really great question. Um, and sort of to, to dial it back a little bit, regular people, citizen scientists, are the citizen science data that's collected by the big platforms. So like Zooniverse platforms, eBird. eBird is basically the mother of all citizen science because they've been collecting data on birds for, the for a very long time and in a very rich way because there are crazy bird people out there that love to do this and always have. And so, but uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology makes all that data available so you can mine that data yourself. Uh, the National Phenology Network runs something called Nature's Notebook. This, to me, is a little harder to use, um, but all of the data that has been collected on phenology, which is the timing of nature, migration, um, hibernation, first blooming of, of buds, leaf out when the leaves come out, um, this is all on the National Phenology Network. All that data is completely available through your desktop, and they have, both eBird and Nature's Notebook have modules for teachers. So does iNaturalist, and iNaturalist is potentially the, the platform that is the most accessible to all of us because it isn't just, it's not events and it's not just birds, 
it's everything. And iNaturalist also has a teacher, you know, places to click on curriculum, places to click on um, how the data can be used and has been used. So all of that is there. Now, what is a theory? So Darwin came up with, and he, so did Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, and so did, you know, it was not just these individual people that came up with this theory, right? There was fomenting intellectual curiosity. There's a lot of conversation, right? Darwin wrote something oh, like 1,400 letters to his yeah. friend at the British Royal Society. Oh, wow. At least. Yes. So there's, there's a huge conversation that was happening between this citizen science and a botanist. And so they were both basically interested in the same questions life and how does it form and we're feeding yes. off of each other yes and and geologists and all sorts of people is there conversation between the different kinds of citizen science right now or do you feel like the birders are in one place the insectors are in another place the sea stars are in a different place um scientists and Scientists in universities, I would say, who are trying to answer, trying to understand, you know, difficult questions about what is happening to nature, why are we losing it, what are these terrible impacts, how are they happening, they understand, they know that they, if they're a bird person, they need to understand what's happening with the insects. Mm -hmm. They also need to understand what's happening with the soil, mm -hmm. what's happening with the water. So they are looking to use data sets from different fields. This is one of the beauties of our moment in time, right? That we have this digitization of everything. So that makes it much more accessible. The data is takeable from other places. It sounds like you're working on a project where you're reconstructing data over the course of land use changes over the course of decades. And so it's a difficult process to actually get all of that data to talk to itself, right? You're basically yes. having to bring it back to life. Yes, and that is the storyteller. That's the storyteller's job. And the and theorist's job, right? The theory is a story too, right? A theory is a story, but a theory is very much embedded in a history of questioning and a history of agreement among uh, peers, among uh, big networks of people about what makes the grade of uh, truly re robust ideas that can be demonstrated. And so it's, it's what, what I think that you're... Consistency. You're, consistency and um, what's the word? Accountability. So professional scientists, you know, their, their dreams are to get papers published in these journals, Science and Nature. And so they come up with an idea. They're not going to come up with a big theory. They're going to come up with a small postulate that would be part of a bigger idea. And they're going to make that paper and show their evidence and their thinking and their conclusion. And then they're going to send that to science and nature. Those publications send the paper out to, for a peer review, to other PhDs that are in the same field. And those PhDs in the same field are going to look at was the data collected in the right way? Is the question the right question? Uh, okay, if the question is the right question and the data is good, did the flow of the thinking flow in the right way? And they're going to give a peer review back to the original authors. 
who are then going to revise uh, in response to those questions. And only then do you even get published in these publications. And these are small papers. So to build up to uh, a theory, especially now when we, we have this really dense understanding of the density of data that comprises the world, uh, it becomes a huge task. And, and I guess I would ask if we need another theory. We certainly want, but to pull this back down to the regular people in a community, and there's, a, there's also, we should talk at some point about the, the dispute among some people in citizen science who want to call it community science rather than citizen mm. science. Mm. So that's something to discuss. But let's just say I'm in a community and um, I'm, I'm going to do a citizen science project around social justice and environmental justice. So one thing I might do is take iNaturalist and start a project on it. So very important point. When you start your citizen science project, do not invent your own database. Use iNaturalist or use eBird or use Nature's Notebook um, and use a database that already exists. Is the zoo... Zooniverse. Zooniverse is made up of projects that use databases like iNaturalist or other ways. There's, there's more professional back stories to some of the projects. So you post your project on Zooniverse and collect the data through eBird and iNaturalist. If you go to Zooniverse and you want to, like, you're interested in elephants or mammals, uh, and a project will ask you to identify elephants if you're in Africa or mam like bears if you're out in the woods on your camping. And they'll want you to use something like an app that you put on your phone. I see. They'll collect the data into their database. I see. And their database has been built to be um, compatible with the kind of data that eBird and iNaturalist collect. I see. But so if you start a citizen science project, don't reinvent the wheel. Go to iNaturalist. Yes. So I'll, let's say I want to do an environmental justice. So I want to ask myself, uh, is, is the, um, the amount of greenery in San Francisco equitably, fairly distributed? Because there's a lot of data that shows that if you live around a lot of trees and a lot of bushes and a lot of greenery, you're healthier. You have healthier mental health and you have healthier physical health. So what I might do is put parameters in a project on iNaturalist and ask people to help me take photographs of all the trees on their street. And then I would take that data of numbers of trees on the streets and I might make a map of it. And then I would have data and a story that would be visually and spatially explicit to take to City Hall to say, we do not have enough trees in this part of the city. This is unfair, this is discrimination, and the, we need to allocate more funds to plant more trees in these parts of the city. That's citizen science. Is someone doing this already? It sounds like a great project. There's stuff like that everywhere. There's, there's lots and lots of stuff like that. So it seems very goal-oriented. It doesn't have to be, but I find, um, you know, I've... I'm a, citizen, I'm a big booster for citizen science, right? So I go everywhere I go. I tell people, citizen science, it's the thing to do. And um, people will, you know, say, well, how should I do it? 
And, you know, I live in San Francisco, so there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of projects. There's a lot of awareness. There's a lot of scientists that want help doing what they're doing. But in a lot of places, you don't have that. So I'll say to people, well, you can use iNaturalist wherever you are. And so, but I think there's a, there's, there's still some big spaces that we need to get over, hops that we really need to solve to uh, really deploy citizen science to its fullest potential. And one of them is this. So say, you know, a, um, I don't know, a 15-year-old kid in a small town in Iowa says to me, I want to do citizen science. What should I do? There's nobody here doing any projects and, and there's no... Um, restoration projects and there's no scientists nearby that I can help and and uh, I'll say well use iNaturalist to take your own observations of species around where you live you know go to the creek where there's you see where there's more diversity start noticing you see more uh, bugs and birds and bees in the spring follow the year but you know if that person isn't in a community of other people doing it who either just share the experience which can just be fun um, then it's hard to stay motivated. Now, iNaturalist has a community online, so invites people to talk to each other across, you know, whatever geographical distance about their observations. But I would say that right now, that's kind of fairly high bar. Like the people that I see on those things are uh, on those chats are very high level people in terms of their understanding of of the natural world, and it would be hard to enter into a conversation with them. I mean, I don't really feel like I'm qualified to talk to them. <laughs> Can we back up to the motivations here? Like, it seems to me that you guys are almost like gardeners. Like, you're trying to curate your planet because, well, maybe you're worried about your species' future otherwise. This ties into the indigenous practices, too, right? Yeah, from her book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the word, uh, thank you for the question and the thoughts. Um, you know, gardener is, is an interesting term, right? Because it, it uh, implies cultivation. Um, and part of, and that's wonderful. And actually, a lot of indigenous cultures gardened, essentially, a kind of gardening of the species that, that they were coexisting with. Um, at the same time, we have this biodiversity crisis now where we're losing, you know, huge percentages of plants and animals off the face of the earth. And what's going to happen? Uh, we need them. So we will figure out how to keep their functioning. You know, in, in China, a couple of years ago, there was a bee collapse. And so, uh, thousands of workers were deployed to hand pollinate crops wow. like we'll hand pollinate you know we will do that we will figure out how to do without um, some of these species sort of because it turns out that species do need to have big wild spaces wild areas where their cycles their doings their relationships are untrammeled by huge human impacts now, humans can have some impact there, but not the kind of impact that is increasingly on the earth. And uh, so that's... What's the consequence of losing all those species? Well, you know, COVID is one of the consequences of losing a lot of species. COVID is uh, a really? result. 
Yes, this is true. Uh, so what happens is other species have, you know, when I, you read my book, my father died when I was writing my book and I really understood, oh my goodness, I'm really part of a generational transfer. I'm here not only because of my father and his, and my mother and those gener human generations, but I'm also here because of the biotic interactions that came before Homo sapiens even became a species. So I'm actually here because of these bugs that are still here. I'm here because of these plants that are still here. Like life has unfolded and led to new life. Yeah. So when all these things have happened in evolution, right? So we have um, all these relationships because there's no such thing as, there's no, there's no island. No species is an island. They're all related and co-evolved with other species. So when we cut down habitat to create um, an agricultural field, uh, the slashing and burning of the Amazon, for example, to create cat to create grazing for cattle so that we can eat more beef, or even just really to you know to grow coffee. It's not just always beef. It's just really to feed uh, the human appetite. We take out the home of thousands, if not millions, of species. So bats, <laughs> for example that have co-evolved for millions and millions of years with viruses. Bats actually sustain viruses in their bodies and they don't get sick because their temperature, it's like they're constantly running a fever. They burn so hot. Wow. That's part of their adaptation to the viruses that they can carry. So they can carry the viruses and not be affected by them. So we take out the habitat, take out the bats. The viruses don't go away, they're still there. Now they're looking for a host and they find a big bodied, warm blooded host in many numbers. And that's called humans. The, the bats end up in the cities is what I've read where the habitat is destroyed and they end up mixing with humans in places where they normally wouldn't. Well, that, that can, that happens as well. I mean, there's a very big bat stories. I hope somebody's writing a book about bats because there's all kinds of bats all over the world. And they're, they're very, they're what they're, they are a keystone species. We need them. Of course. Uh, and we, we really need them to exist. They're almost invisible though. Well, they are to us because right. that's the way they like it. Right. They move fast and they are, you know, they're just amazing creatures. And Come out in the dark. Yeah. So that's uh, an example of losing other species that we, we're going to control COVID. We're going to adapt to it. So we can control and adapt to many things, and we will do that. And uh, we also seem to have a pretty high tolerance for, for mortality of people. You know, it's a tragedy what's going on with COVID, the numbers of people who have died. It's a fraction of the people who died in previous pandemics or, you know, that were killed in genocides over history. Uh, you can't be too optimistic about our tolerance for bad things happening, and then we adapt to them. Actually, in terms of numbers, it seems like humans are doing pretty good. Is what? How many billions of you right now? Quite we're almost few. 8 billion. And we're, we're, the demographers tell us we're going to about almost 11 billion in the next 20 years. 
And yeah, we're rocking and rolling, right? Uh, but at the same time, many, many scientists will tell you we have exceeded our carrying capacity. So we are, we have too many people and we can't really sustain ourselves and we're not sustaining ourselves sustainably now. Mm-hmm. So how are we doing that? Um, we are doing that by burning fossil fuels. So, you know, this all goes back to the sun and photosynthesis and the amount of energy made available to power human life. And we exceed that budget that the sun gives us every day. How do we exceed that budget? By using the photosynthesis of yesterday, which is in the fossil fuels. So that's, you know, one way of putting why the problem that we have with fossil fuels is that it's um, allowing us to overconsume. What do you... What do you think of nuclear power? On Alvaflas, we turned to thorium reactors several thousand years ago, and it has created a situation where we were free from combustion. We don't have to burn things anymore. And on Earth, a huge problem is that in your book, you mentioned fire as an indigenous practice, but we're very reluctant on Alva Floss in the past to burn things because there were, we were burning for electricity. And once we started to have electricity that we didn't burn, we could go back to using fire in the forests and in the environment to control things. And it seems like on Earth there's this similar reticence against fire because there's already so many things burning, factories burn, cities burn, the cars burn, but how could we possibly add the forests to that? Is nuclear power something that Earthlings are considering? Yes, they are. Um, There's all sorts of, you know, energy solutions that people are working on, and I'm sure uh, we will come up with some good ones. The question, of course, is if we can transition to something fast enough to prevent certain disasters from happening. Um, Nuclear comes with a lot of problems and, um, you know, it's, it's talk about playing with fire, right? Like the, uh, the potential for nuclear disaster and then what will happen after that is, um, well, the cool thing about thorium is it can't have a runaway chain reaction. So, it's a They're bit safer, safer reactors. Yeah. In general. But my question is how do you convince 11 billion people that there are too many of them? Without them taking it personally, I guess. That's a really good question. Um, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's really the question of our time and maybe of all time, which is, you know, what is it to be a human being? And what is the relationship of one human being to the rest of life? Mm-hmm. Uh, procreation and having babies is it's an instinct. And... Well, it's more than an instinct, right? Every single human is directly related to the very first life on Earth. It's an unbroken chain of four billion years that I feel like instinct is best reserved for something that's more recent. Well, it's deeply meaningful to the humans too, right? To all of life, it seems well, like. It's a, 
what I guess I mean by it is that it's as deep of a, an impulse in an individual human to want to procreate or to procreate whether you want to or not um, as much as eating is and sleeping. Now, we are, we are not slaves to our instincts and plenty of people make the decision not to have children, not to procreate. And they do it happily and well and they live perfectly good lives and there's, that's a good way to live is to not have babies. <laughs> But also, you know, it is good to have babies too. So it's when I, when I bring it up as an instinct, I mean that we haven't been able to grapple with how do we govern ourselves uh, around procreation uh, at all. And, and that extends actually to death, right? We also don't govern ourselves very well around the end of life. And we have, you know, these huge numbers of people using a, a big portion of the budget of the medical system to stay alive because we cannot make the decision to declare death. Hmm. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't pretend to have any kind of real answer to that. I, I see it's a problem. And whenever I hear people who have opinions about it, uh, I, you just see the problems with those opinions immediately. I mean, who gets to decide you, you know, the minute you start controlling somebody else's fertility, you're in trouble and we're all in trouble. Well, hopefully they get to decide, right? It seems yeah. like it's a matter of people being able to take the power into their own hands with a lot of these choices. Well, you'll hear a lot of people uh, from a lot of different sectors of thought and uh, activists all over the world saying, if there's one thing we can do, that will really help the situation. It is empower women and girls all over the world, where they are, especially where they are not empowered, to use birth control, to have reproductive control over their own bodies, and to be educated. And seeing data that you don't even need to educate them, they already know <laughs> that perhaps they don't want to have children. They already want to control their births, and they will use birth control if you make it available to them. Yeah. I wonder if the same thing is possible with end of life. It seems like on your planet, it's a very difficult thing to talk about at a young age to plan for. I've read that very few places have even the ability, let me start that sentence over. Very few places grant the ability to choose to end your life. Yeah, no, they don't. On Alpha Floss, we talk about this basically from the moment that we're born. This is a central question where we plan our deaths. Yeah, we can live for thousands of years, so we have to make that choice at some point. And not all of us do. Many will choose to end it after a few decades. Some will live for three, four thousand years, and they are often the ones that we turn to for wisdom, for understanding how things change, because they see that they understand how things have changed over time. But we, do, we do want our elders. Exactly. And we need our elders. But earthlings seem to have almost a stomachache when it comes to... Yeah, the, uh, denial <laughs> is one good word for it. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big topic. Um, there's a developmental trajectory, right, that we go through and as you get to be my age, I've gone through some developmental trajectories to be able to look back and say, 
oh, my understanding is different now than it was 20 years ago. And part, and all, it's lived experience, right? And um, so, you know, you really kind of can't have 30-year-olds deciding about the fate of 70-year-olds because they, they don't understand yet. Uh, Unless maybe they're determining their own fate at 70 when they're 30. Yeah, well, it, what would be good is if the 70-year-olds could, I mean, in 70 is pretty young today, uh, actually. You know, you don't want, you don't want to put the, the marker at 70. Some yeah. people are just getting going at 70, which is great. We have a phone call on Monday with an earth scientist that studies aging. Oh, fantastic. At Albert Einstein. Wow. I, will have, I can't wait to tune into that. That is a very interesting subject. Super interesting. He wants you guys to live forever. Forever. Well, that I don't get, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this ties into procreation and theory, I think. So, in many ways, I think that having children gives people and other Flossians the sense that they have accomplished something. You have put your mark on the world, and something will be there when you die. And it seems to me that the people who have the hardest time letting go of accepting death and of the end are the ones that feel like they haven't made their mark yet. And so I wonder if citizen science couldn't be a mechanism for helping people create a mark and to deeply contemplate death because you cannot study nature without acknowledging death. Well, I really like the way that you're framing this. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. I think, uh, you know, when you reference, you know, what it's like, what the feeling upon having children of, it's actually, I have two children. They're living with me now. Um, in their, you know, in their 20s, they, um, there's a sense of connection, right? There's a deeper connection to the earth, to cycles. When you have a baby, you have to live uh, on the, the rhythms of a baby, and then you go through the developmental process of your children with them. The passage and of time. And calibrate your own life to another life. And that is, a, if you are not under too much stress, which some people are, in that situation, you know, if they don't have enough to eat and their work is bad or they don't have a good support system, that can be very onerous. But let's just say that there's enough support and there's enough resources, then that is a very satisfying and joyful experience on the whole. Uh, yes, a citizen scientist can also be connected to the life cycle, to birth, death, growth, regrowth. Uh, fecundity, everything through observ direct observations of nature. And that is the channel, that is the connection with citizen science. So, and then because we're talking in these big terms, this big kind of storytelling, which is great, one of my favorite um, things I learned from one of the citizen scientists in my book, Sam Drogi, and he's more than that. He's really, he's a, he's a real scientist, but he's kind of a, kind of, the poet. Pardon? Was he the poet? Yes, he's, he loves poetry. 
and he's probably made more new citizen science projects than anybody else. And he's very focused on, you know, real world problems. So he's very focused on bees right now. And I just Google Sam Droge, D-R-O-E-G-E. He works for the, um, the U.S. Geological Survey. And he takes these incredible pictures of bees. Anyway, Sam likes to point out, I've seen him give a lecture and one of his set talking points is about citizen science. That in the room that I'm in here, I don't have any lights on, but there's two lights here. If Thomas Edison had never lived, and this goes back to your point earlier about Darwin and the conditions, if, if Edison had never lived, we would still have electricity in this room because that it was the time had come for electricity to be invented. Mm. There were lots of other people working on it and there were all the technology that led up to it being possible was unfolding. And, you know, we humans love to tell a hero story and give one person credit for things, but that's not really how anything happens in human history. It's in the aggregate together that these ideas emerge. Mm. And then Sam really drives it home. He says, you as a citizen scientist have a more important part to play than Thomas Edison. Because when I go out, like after I talk with you guys, I'll go out with my phone and I'll do some iNaturalist observations and I'll take some pictures of butterflies if I'm lucky or some plants that I always like to take pictures of. There's seabirds that live about a mile from me and I love to try to take their picture. That becomes a data point of time and space. That instance of life and my observation of it will never come again. It is never going to be captured by some brilliant scientist in a lab. I can donate it to that brilliant scientist, which is what I want to do. But I, my observation is profoundly important. Your observations are profoundly important. But you, and this is maybe back to the birth and death conversation, we have to imbue our own activities with our own meaning and importance. Now, we have to decide, yes, my observations are important. My connection with these, I love these, uh, these coastal Indian paintbrushes, they're called, these plants. I've taken it upon myself to document them when I see them. And I feel like I am important to that plant because I'm creating data in a spatially explicit way, time, space, my observation that is the, the data that we need to understand what's really happening to species everywhere. And you know what else is really beautiful, and Drogi talks about this too, is with your own work, you've sort of universalized your observations into this art. And scientists universalize their observations into theory. And poetry universalizes observations. It's a meaning. So there's a synthetic side of science as well that it seems like citizens are participating in, if not through theory, then through art. I wanna, I'm going to just give a little pushback to the word theory. Yeah. Because uh, okay, I think theory is great. You know, there's theory of relativity, the theory of evolution by way of natural selection. But once we make something a theory like that, most of us think of it as something kind of fixed. Like, okay, there's a big marker right there. And that's not actually, you're shaking your head, you know, that's not what happens in science. It then becomes this thing that all these scientists like try to push out and define more clearly. But still, we, it's not even, 
theory in the mental way of what I think the most wonderful potential of citizen science is, but it is to aggregating the data in the bigger pictures that you just were alluding to as creating theory. What they do create is a picture, uh, and I, when I say, I should maybe clarify that word, an image of life and existence as it is unfolding. So it's, it's uh, showing the world in which we are embedded and how that is unfolding. And from there, we can find stories of uh, why is this one blackbird species declining so badly? Oh, it looks like the insects over here where they have their overwintering grounds, the insects are declining there and they depend on the insects. Why are the insects declining there? Oh, because over here I see a pattern of using herbicides on big industrial agriculture that kills the insects. Cause and effect. Now I'm seeing the cycle of what's happening maybe to the birds on the East Coast that might cycle around all the way to what's happening in, uh, you know, in Texas on a big ag field. But isn't that a theory? So I think on our planet, that's what a theory is, is it's an explanation. It's a cause and it's a cause of some effect. This is why definitions are important. I, th I think that we work with a different word for theory, where it's not something that is fixed the way that it is for humans. It's more a possibility of how we link together cause and effect. And many people have many theories, and we come together to discuss them in order to move our understanding forward. I like that. And so in some ways, it seems like citizen science, especially, you said that there was data that citizen scientists could access themselves. If this becomes something that an individual is passionate about, they could begin to tease out cause and effect, especially over long periods of time. Absolutely. And then and, um, the data is there to make cases of every kind. You know, uh, it, but it's, it's a little tough. And you know, we alluded to that earlier about these big databases. So I've been, the U.S. Geological Survey has uh, documented land use change over all of the United States from 1837 all the way to now. Yeah. And even projecting into the future. But each of those years uh, on the website is such a big file that I can't even open it on my computer. So what I have to do, actually, this is what I'm going to do this afternoon, is... This is, this is the cool world we live in, right? Because I'm not a scientist and I'm doing this. I'm going to go to Google Scholar and I'm going to put in the primary author of that data set. I'm going to put in his name. And I'm going to, what's going to come up for me, I'm going to be able to see on Google Scholar all the other scientists that have referenced, that have used his data. So they, on their university computers and their mainframes with much more power than I have, have taken out what they need. I know that I'm going to find data on birds and what, on how land use has changed uh, bird populations. I'm looking for butterflies. So I'm not counting on finding that, but I'll probably find something to do with insects. But somebody else has taken a piece of that data out. And so, you know, to your point earlier about this conversational thing that goes on, yeah, Darwin wrote letters by hand to his colleagues. And in a way, though, I'm having a conversation with all these people about what they found with what they're doing, and then how can I use what they're doing for what I'm doing? And, you know, it's the miracle of Linux software, really. You know, 
citizen science today is is the is what has been made possible here through this incredible technology that I'm still very grateful for. That makes me think. You talk about this in your book a bit, but what do you think the role of competition is in science and citizen science? Because in some sense, it's good for us to move forward to compete with one another for you talk about the birders but at the same time rivalries can result in suppression of progress perhaps i think this is a huge problem and a hugely good question that's really coming up right now so um there's a film that i'm just doing some uh writing up uh, some interviews for, for Nautilus, which is a publication we all like here. And this film was supposed to get released in uh, February at the Tribeca Film Festival, but COVID, you know, changed those plans. It's called Picture a Scientist. And Picture a Scientist is about sexual discrimination in science. And, you know, my editor at Nautilus gave me the assignment. I thought, oh, I don't want to watch that film. I know what it's going to say. Well, it's riveting. <laughs> it's fantastic. I recommend everybody try to see it somehow. But um, when you get down to bias in science, and then, of course, we're also experiencing this right now with Black Lives Matter and with universities convulsing over how are we going to address these biases that we always give lip service to, but we obviously have not really addressed. And I think there's a bottom line to all of it, to racial discrimination and sex discrimination and its competition. How cool if you could, with one single swipe, get rid of half of your competition. Women, get rid of them. They're not, they're not worthy of competing with. <laughs> they're not allowed to compete with us. Uh, black people, brown people, anybody of any other intersectionality, you're not in here. We only have these people in here. And then we're going to compete with each other in this way. So we have a problem because at every level, that kind of competition is built into the way we progress. But that's an interesting kind of competition, right? That's the sort of zero-sum attitude where somebody's got to lose for somebody else to benefit. And on our planet, we went to great lengths to remove this kind of rivalrous behavior from science. And it seems like citizen science has the opportunity to move in this direction. What do you think? It sure does. I mean, the birders are their own little category, right? And, you know, like, they, there are people that are, they compete with themselves, essentially, though, because they want to have the, their life list. They want to have all the birds. They want to see all the birds that exist on the earth. That's what they want to see. Yeah. And that's really what they're after. They might have, like, little rivalries with other people that are good at it, but they want it for themselves. <laughs> they're competing with themselves. Citizen science is fundamentally about, and this comes back to this question of whether it should be called citizen science or community science. So citizen science, I would argue, is about community science. And community is a subset, right, of global. You know, we have a global community. We have a continental community, you know, that we, we all have one president of the United States. Then we have one, you know, regional community. I live in California, so I have the governor, and then I live in a city. So I have all these different communities that I'm embedded in by being a person. Um, and, and everybody on earth is embedded in communities that are, that are like that, even if they, they belong to, or even if they don't, aren't citizens of a particular country that they live in, they still are part of that region. 
Um, so citizen science, because it is really about the aggregate, and the only way that it really works or has its big impact is through this aggregate, is through the collection of millions and millions of observations in which the patterns of nature can be seen. They can't be seen accurately in smaller subsets. Smaller subsets give you some information, and sometimes it's really critical, but they don't give you the whole picture over time, and that's why we need the huge vision. And there's no way, there's no way to get that without millions of people participating. Do you have any illustrations of what this kind of collaborative data set looks like? Like, what are the data sets, what are the products of this kind of collaborative observation? Well, the first project that jumps to my mind is City Nature Challenge. That is a project that occurs using iNaturalist. And City Nature Challenge was, is um, a project that was instigated by Allison Young and Leela Higgins. They're, they're both citizen science um, you know, professionals, essentially, at the California Academy of Sciences and at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. So what they did, and it's gone like for four or five years, for a, about a, a period, I think of about a week in April, they enjoined cities around the world to, to get out their people to make observations of nature. And it has been a competition, friendly competition, to see what cities um, have the most species observations, the most number of observations, and then the most different kinds of species. This year with COVID, um, they took the competition part out. Like we're not going to even, we're not going to name a winner, um, although that's difficult because you want to see where they got the most observations. So this is an example of people around the world in a unified way. This year, something like more than 150 cities on every continent except Antarctica hmm. participated in a global challenge on behalf of understanding uh, nature in cities. So this is... I, I just always say this. I wish the UN would give them a commendation because I don't think we've ever done anything in such a collaborative, global way before. And really fascinating data comes out of it. So species you didn't know were there. Uh, start to look at patterns in where, uh, where is the greater species diversity. One thing that pops up very quickly is where the diversity is. So San Francisco, we have like more avid iNaturalist users than lots of other places. So last year, anyway, we won, but we, no, we lost Cape Town. Okay, Cape Town, South Africa has so much more diversity than San Francisco mm -hmm. because of its environment, because of its, its eco-region, and, and it's, uh, it's just basically where it is. So now we start to see, I mean, this is a piece of data. Look at the cities that have the most biodiversity in them. And then look at the numbers, and you can get this data from citizen science databases. Look at how species distributions are changing with climate change impacts. So you could, I can't do this because I'm not smart enough, but a young person could, uh, make up yourself a little algorithm to figure out where are the cities going to be with the most biodiversity in the next 30 years. And then you know what? You should move there because biodiversity is health. Biodiversity is resilience. Biodiversity is pleasure and life. And survival, and, right? And survival. You, I, I 
I would love to see an example of the kind of visualizations that can come from these sorts of citizen science projects. I know yeah, that can you show big, us one of your maps? Yeah, there's a big bird project. Okay, I'm, I'll show you a couple of maps okay. that can come out of citizen science. Okay, so here's an example of a visualization made from data collected by citizen scientists. This um, GIF shows a single species of bird, a warbler, as it is migrating up and down over the course of a year over North America, over, over the United States. So what you're seeing, if somebody is not seeing this visualization, is basically a black background with the outline of the United States. And then as this little timer moves from January to December and back, the, the screen lights up. So we start in January, the birds are down south in, in Texas and Florida. And then moving up to June, they're in the mid part of the latitude of the country. And then up to September and December, they're starting to move back down to, they go all the way up to the top and then they come down. So you're seeing light uh, that is visualizing data observations of birds. And Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a number of these visualizations on their website. So I suggest going and looking at them because they're very beautiful. All of them are. And it, it seems like they're sort of preferring the upper, what is that, North Dakota area of the United States? All the way, and then concentrating down in Texas in the winter, looks like. Yeah, Texas, uh, Texas is a great place to go bird watching and also to go butterfly watching. Texas, so really interestingly, you know, you think about uh, the, the bottom part of the United States is on the border of Mexico. And so we're starting to get into a tropical ecosystem. So these are this, you know, mid, mid latitudinal tropics. So there's this great mixing of species that are from our temperate um, environment that's most of North America into the tropic tropics. So it's really uh, a very rich, rich area of biodiversity. And yeah, Texas is a great contradiction as most places are between having, you know, the most amazing biodiversity and good protections to then of course decimating it at will constantly. Um, well, you have to go both ways sometimes. I guess so. <laughs> the um, it's no San Francisco. Well, we're no, we got to fight every minute here too, uh, and we do. <laughs> it's actually good though to live in a place where you have other people to fight with because that makes all the difference. Absolutely, um, really. If you look at some of the other visualizations on Cornell and start to imagine in your own mind that all of these different species are, are circumnavigating the globe. They're moving all the time. It's not just birds, it's insects, it's small animals, small mammals, large carnivores. And, and they're creating these layers of, of movement and changing how things work as they go. The cycling of life, it's just unbelievably dense and beautiful. How far away do you think humans are from having maps like that, which cover the entire planet? You know, uh, I, I don't know. Um, there, there might be some people out there who have done something of that kind that I don't know about, which is actually an interesting thing to bring up, which is that citizen science is a huge and burgeoning movement across the world. So is citizen mapping. 
And in effect, um, citizen mapping and citizen science kind of converge and really kind of are the same thing. With COVID, for example, open street map, which is one, which is, you know, we don't call it a citizen science project, but it is because open street map is, is like a Google that is aggregated by uh, regular people contributing information about um, streets and what's going on on them. And OpenStreetMap provides a platform if you want to start looking at COVID, for example, in your neighborhood or in your town or in your city. Where, where is it concentrated? What are the numbers here or there? Uh, you know, it's, it's worth telling the story that GIS, Global Information Systems, which is the technology behind being able to locate uh, date, time, latitude, and longitude by this device... <laughs> which uses satellites to do it, was basically invented when, um, it was, I think it was the plague in England, huh. and nobody could figure out why everybody kept getting sick. And this guy, I'm not going to remember his name, I think this is in my book, so it could be looked up to, to verify. He, um, he mapped London, and, and he mapped the outbreaks, where it was happening, and just looking at where the outbreak was happening was very visible almost instantly that it was happening the most at these open sewers. So, oh, oh this my is John God. Snow. Is it? I believe so. I, it was for cholera. Cholera, yes. He yes. identified the Broad Street water pump and basically was able to tell that one side of the street was sick and the other wasn't. And what decided where the people were getting sick was what side of the street they lived on and where they got their water from. I've been recently researching this. It's one of my favorite <laughs> topics. It's an, is, I mean, I love this topic, too. I, I d didn't remember the details of the story, which I apologize for. Um, I shouldn't have tried to summarize it without remembering the details. Perfectly. Oh, it's fine. No worries. We don't want to perpetuate those kind of <laughs> But it's a great story. So just see that seeing where things are Mm -hmm. uh, actually leads to discovery. Very much so. Knowing. And knowing. Yeah, it's, that's a definition of knowing, right? So then I'm showing now, for those people who don't, aren't watching on a screen, a map of nature in the city in San Francisco. And this can be seen online um, by Googling natureinthecity.org and then looking. It's a little nonprofit that we made this map for. And there's like a link to the map in there. And so this map is made up of a lot of information from citizen collected data and also from data collected in lots of other ways. It has the historical waterways of San Francisco in it. It has the geology of San Francisco in it. Um, so I'm gonna now show the back of the map, which has four maps. And this one on the upper left is the geology of San Francisco and this map was commissioned and it was, um, orders were given to make this map after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. So we still live on, on this land that still looks like that. And then to the right of that is a map of gardening the city where, and this is a, we're telling a history of what happened here in San Francisco. So when the gold rush happened and then when all these people came to live here and make San Francisco into a big metropolis, they wanted to make it look like an, a beautiful European city. So it was, so parts of it were transformed into greenery 
to look, and I wanted it to look like Central Park, wanted to have a Central Park. But the thing is that actually San Francisco is a coastal dune ecosystem on sand dunes. So basically, in order to make San Francisco look like a European ideal, uh, a lot was destroyed. Huh. And we didn't, people didn't know that that's what they were doing, right? They didn't understand that. Then down here on the left bottom is the resilient city. This map reflects our awareness that that's not the way we want to do things. We want to bring back the native uh, species. We want to bring back the native uh, landscape as it, as it co-evolved here. I'd like you to can't... see that map have more points on it. Y yes. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, these, the maps on the front of the map have this greenery green on them. That green is from a LIDAR map. LIDAR is like radar, only it works with light. And the FBI actually made this LIDAR map of the tree cover canopy in San Francisco right after 9-11 happened. They were going around to big cities where big events were about to happen. So there was either a baseball game or a football game about to happen. And they did this LIDAR map of tree cover canopy looking for things that might be hidden in it. Hmm. And then when it was over, they just handed the map to the city of San Francisco. And we used that map layer to in this map. So there's more than 40 maps all consolidated into these maps. And then the bottom right map is a map of connectivity. And that's showing the peninsula of San Francisco in a bigger ecosystem, in the Bay Delta ecosystem. So the Pacific Ocean on the right, and then the Bay and the Delta, which is made a big you know, marshy tidal estuary from the San Joaquin and the Sacramento rivers. And it is actually the most important environmental issue we face here is the, how that has been degraded uh, because of human use and trying to get it back functioning. And especially with climate change impacts, you know, the levee's going to break. <laughs> it's going to be a disaster if we don't do something uh, resilient there. But it's, on that map, you see just some icons of a blue whale, a pelican, a Chinook salmon, and a monarch butterfly. And to just illustrate that, you know, we live on the peninsula and we go through our daily lives, but so do these other creatures that have been doing so for millions of years. They're beautiful uh, maps. It's a fun map. It's really, I loved working on this map. But one of the reasons I wanted to work on this map is because um, you asked, is there a visualization of the whole earth that would be kind of like having all of those Cornell maps? Um, there's, so people do, in the world that I work in, you know, this environmental communication world, people do make maps. Um, they tend not to be beautiful like this one. Uh, we had an artist and a graphic designer in addition to cartographers, and then me, a writer, and most maps will, will be made by teams of map makers who are good at the cartography, or they'll be very good at bringing the data into the map, but they aren't visualizers with the artist or the graphic designer skill set. They're not emotional in the same way. Um, and, you know, and they're not, yeah, they're, they, they, it communicates to them, but it doesn't communicate otherwise to us. Really. Interesting. This Hughes nicely on Albafloss. We define art as anything that seeks to remedy. Oh, I like that. And this is truly a remedy for a lack of understanding. It's very beautiful. 
Well, and the wonderful thing about the map is it really highlights surfaces, how much biodiversity there is in our city. So it's out there to protect. And the restoration map is really fantastic because when we have restored ecosystems, species have come back to those ecosystems that nobody expected to see again. You know, this light rail, this clapper rail that is this very occult, very shy bird, very endangered. Oh my God, it's living in San Francisco again. This um, jackrabbit, this endemic jackrabbit. Nobody expected to see that. It's now people see it down by the shipyards because we brought the habitat back. If you, if you build it, they will come. So it's very, that's what we need to do. Um, you know, sometimes people call that rewilding. And I like that term. Wow. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> so if I could maybe just, well, ask you one last question here. What do you think is the single greatest threat to the continuation of your species on Earth? I mean, what stops me, um, I think about, you know, I get up in the morning thinking about these questions and I, and I think about them in the middle of the night and I'm pretty preoccupied with, with what's going on here. Um, I love, you know, I like to say some of my favorite people are people, <laughs> but you know, what we do to ourselves, we're not going to go extinct. You know, we are incredible survivors. The, the way we could go extinct is if people start uh, bombing using the atom bomb again it could happen but otherwise you know we have these billions of people even if we lost seven eighths of people we wouldn't go extinct you know but what about all those other species that we are driving into extinction i i feel like that is a huge and even incomprehensible moral tragedy a waste. I, I can't even. I can't even fully fathom the the uh, what that means. It's interesting that you call it a moral tragedy. It is a moral tragedy. We're doing it. We know what we're doing, and we're doing it anyway. So it sounds like you feel the quality of life for your species is threatened. And it sure is. But you know. Um, Quality is subjective. It changes with time. You know, we can say, oh, it was nicer to live in the 1920s when everybody had their own garden and they farmed. And yeah, not really. Not if you're a woman, right? I mean, it's better to live now. It's better to live now for most women yeah. than yeah. any other time before this. And, and we have also made such beautiful things as a species. Um, including citizen science. And we have many beautiful, incredible attributes that I hope, you know, will, will be strong enough to prevail. Um, I hope so one, too. One thing about COVID, I think, is that I think even for people who are, you know, deniers about it, I still think it gets into the marrow of the bones, the message that we are all connected and there's no way around it. And we're all biological. And there's no way around it. Yeah. So I hope that nudges some, something in the biased brain to, to open up to this. And it's so full of joy to open up to the rest of the world, to the world that creates our life. 
to biology. Uh, it's just so rich. It's so complex and endlessly giving, really. I like to think of humans as going through developmental stages on the level of the species. Well, I like that. Where there is an adolescence of not caring and not paying attention to what is happening. And then there's this gradual growth and wisdom that allows humans to pay attention to the things that are truly pressing and urgent. I like that. So we just have to get ourselves through this adolescence without, like, torching the house. Most adolescents seem to. That's true. Most of them do. We do. And adolescents also really do bring wonderful things to the world and different ways of seeing things. And they have their, uh, they have their, their very wonderful side, too. That's reassuring. Yeah, if you can get them to clean up their room. <laughs> That seems to be the task for the humans right now. Yeah. Yes, very nicely put. Well, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half, so I don't know if we should keep you much longer today, but we'd love to talk more maybe a few months from now or something when you get a new project going. I'm, I'm very happy to do that. I'm working on, uh, I'm working on this book about the Anthropocene. Ooh. Ooh. And um, it's... Uh, it's got a lot of threads to it. I'm going to have to get it in hand. But the Anthropocene part of it, the science part of it, uh, could make an interesting um, topic, like what it is and how people are figuring that out. Yeah. We so the age of humans, right? Yes. And also the really interesting thing is that the geologists that are working on um, what they're calling the golden spike. So when geologists call something a new epoch, like, you know, we're in the Holocene, but they want to call it the Anthropocene now. They have to find these sites around the world that are like type specimens. They're type locations that typify what the Anthropocene is. So there's a group of, there's groups of scientists working on about eight different sites around the world right now. And they're all under the aegis of this Anthropocene working group at, from the University of Leicester mostly and Leicester in England. But the funding is coming from Germany hmm. and it's coming from a cultural museum that it's well the german government is coming up with the money but it was the head of this cultural museum in berkeley in germany that got them the money and he's having artists follow the work of the geologists um and then they're planning on having a an exhibit i don't know when uh exactly but their whole idea is that the anthropocene um, necessitates breaking down these boundaries between science and art altogether. Yeah. And then also the way that the, the, the geologists are doing their work, they're kind of like, so the artist's job is to kind of like do a history of science in the making. As if you could go back with Darwin on the beagle and say, why are you looking at those rocks? And why are you looking at those birds? Tell me what you're thinking. And um, so it's really interesting. It's fascinating. We'll cool. definitely have to talk about that. Yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter as Emmy Hannibal, at Emmy Hannibal, and I'm on Instagram as Speak Butterfly. So on Instagram, I just take pictures of butterflies that are not real, that are depicted butterflies, like people people's tattoos. Uh, and then I have my website. People can contact me through there, which is MarianneHannibal.com. Awesome. 
Well, thank you, Miss Hannibal. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Great to meet you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>